0: Here We will be in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 15, starting in verse 5, and we're going to go all the way uh, through the end of uh, chapter 16 this morning. Now, one of the things that we've seen as we've moved through the the book of Revelation, we've seen a series of cycles. Um, Basically, we've seen the same thing kind of happen over and over again. We've seen the end now uh, multiple times, but we're seeing it from different vantage points and with different emphases. Um, we've seen, for instance, the seven seals, and then we saw the seven seals followed by the seven trumpets, and we saw that there are many connections between those, and we shouldn't be surprised that this morning, as we look at the seven bulls, uh, they too are a reflection in a way of that, but as these things progress, things largely seem to be getting worse, um, and in some ways, things are getting darker, if you will. The cycles intensify as we move our way through the book of Revelation. So with that in mind, let's look to our text now, starting at verse 5 of chapter 15. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever, and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went, and he poured out his bowl of wrath on the earth And harmful, painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, "'Just are you, O holy one who is and who was, "'for you brought these judgments.'" For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire, and they were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had power over the plagues, and they did not repent. And give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And people gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heavens for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake keeping his garments on that he may not go out about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple and the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumbling peals of thunder and a great earthquake, such as there has never been. Since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake, and the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon, the great, to make her drain the cup of wine of the fury of his wrath, and every angel fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from the heaven on the people, and they cursed God for the plague of hail, because the plague was so severe. Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we look to your word this morning, we need you. And we pray you would certainly be present with us. Would you open up your word? Would you help us to know why these words are here for us? And would you feed us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So, when I, getting back from vacation, I was kind of excited to dive back into the book of Revelation. And as I dove back in, I saw that it is judgment, judgment, and more judgment. And I don't know, maybe you are getting a little bit tired. I won't say who one of the members of my family last week said, how much longer are we going to be in Revelation? Um, Why do we need to keep hearing this? Why do we need to hear about this judgment over and over again? Why do we need to hear about the wrath of God and... Reminded of John's words as he begins this book, blessed is the one who reads aloud this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. Our problem is we don't like judgment very much. I remember when I was in college, some of you too in your English classes, maybe you use that Norton Anthology of American Literature, and one of the assignments was reading a sermon by Jonathan Edwards, And of course, it wasn't one of the positive sermons. It was that sermon that he's become so famous for, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, where he says that God, the God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked, his wrath towards you burns like fire as he speaks about God's wrath towards the unbelieving world. I remember... Individuals in my class being quite upset. They, they, they were angry that this man could have ever written this. Who who was he to speak about them like this? And what kind of God is this that will exert this kind of wrath? We, we don't like judgment. We, we much prefer to avoid it. And yet, John, I think, as, as we work our way through it, and even for us this morning, As John told us, these words are good for us. These words, even the ones I just read, as hard as they are to read, they are meant to be a blessing to us. In order to get to that blessing, first we need to kind of work our way quickly at least through the bowls and kind of have a little bit of an understanding of the landscape that we're looking at. In verse five, we read that after this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. The picture here, Is of a heavenly version of the earthly tabernacle. And where do you see the earthly tabernacle? But in Exodus, of course. And it shouldn't surprise us that as we move through this text, and maybe you recognized it as you were hearing it, there's a lot of parallels. There's a lot of connections um, with with the book of Exodus, and in particular, uh, with the plagues, right? We're we're even told that what are the angels going out with but the seven plagues of God, The first ball, what was the first ball? Sores came upon the people and we're reminded of what? That that sixth, that that sixth plague of boils, right? The second and third boils, what happens to the water? It turns to blood, and where do you read about that? But of course, the very first plague. And, and we could go on, we won't make all the connections there. But the point is, there's a strong connection here between God defeating and bringing judgment to the Egyptians at the same time he's freeing his people, and how God, on the last day, will execute his final judgment, as yes, he rescues his people, but as he judges their oppressors. And so, from this tent of witness, seven angels are sent out, and what are they told? Verse 1, chapter 16, go, pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Remember, this is kind of, in a way, a retelling of the seven seals, the seven trumpets, but with much greater intensity. But, but this time, it's also a little different because these bowls of wrath are reserved for unbelievers, okay? What we're speaking of and what we're seeing here is the judgment of those who are not in Christ, those who bear the mark of the beast. Remember, remember that's a symbolic mark, not a literal mark, but unbelievers, And so what do we see? Let's look at these bowls real quick. The first bowl, what happens? It's the first bowl poured out on the earth. And what happens? Painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshiped its image. In a sense here, what what happens to them? Those who get the mark of the beast, what do they also get? They get a mark of punishment for their idolatry. They are marked in a very painful way. Not necessarily physically, maybe it's Spiritual, psychological suffering, we're we're not exactly told the details, but they're marked with suffering. And then the second bowl is poured out on the sea, and it became like blood of a corpse and every living thing died. It was in the sea. And we see the third bowl actually connects very closely with the second, right? Because it's poured out on the rivers and springs, and what happens to them? They too became like blood. Both these second and third boils continue to show the suffering, this intensification of the suffering inflicted on the wicked, inflicted on the unbelievers. And and what is drying up as the blood goes out? But commerce. You can think of great famines following this, economic punishment all connected up with the sea no longer being able to be a place of fish and, and whatnot. And then the fourth bowl. Poured out on the sun. And it was allowed to scorch people with fire. Here the picture. Well, it's quite, quite stark, isn't it, of people being burned with fire. Now, here and at this point, it's, it's not meant to be a literal fire. Okay? The, the punishment here I, I think is better seen as maybe even think of like a stove, as you turn up the heat on the stove. And and the punishment. For the unbelievers, we see this picture of it being turned up. And yet, in verse 9, what do they fail to do? They still fail and refuse to repent. And then the fifth bowl poured out on the throne of the beast. And its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And people gnawed their tongues in anguish. This, this darkness likely symbolizes a separation from God. In other words, for even for the unbeliever, there comes that time, that moment where the reality hits them. Maybe it's it's in the darkness of the night and everything else is quiet in the reality that they are lost and they have no hope and it finally comes upon them. Yet, what do we see? What do they do? Verse 11, cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores and they did not repent of their deeds. In the sixth bowl, poured out on the river Euphrates. Its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And here we see a picture, and, and quite famous picture. We all probably in here, we know of the Battle of Armageddon, right? But how much do we really know of it? We, we hear pictures and we hear signs of like, oh, is this going to be the Battle of Armageddon? Is it going to be the U.S. versus Russia or, or China? Or, and we, we look to all these things and we fail to see what the picture really is. The picture of that false trinity that we've spoken of in past weeks, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, and and they gather together with all the wicked. And who do they they go to fight? But they war against Christ himself and his servants. From that false trinity flows these demonic forces performing miracles that, that people are only too happy to accept because they rejected Christ. Now, we're, we're going to look more at this battle, and it comes into to a bigger picture as we move into chapter 17, 19, and, and 20, and we'll, we'll, we'll see more about this final, final battle. I just want to mention where, where, where it is that they're gathered. You, 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 this place of Armageddon, what is that? It's literally Harmageddon, um, Mount Megiddo, okay? And where do we see that? We see that in the book of Judges. Do you remember... Uh, Jabin and Sisera, and they're defeated by Deborah and Barak, or better yet, let me me read quickly from Judges 5, maybe this will help us, that the kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo, they got no spoils of silver. And see this, from heavens, from heaven the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera. Who do we see was really fighting that battle? But the heavens itself. God Himself was the one who did battle there at the plains of Megiddo. And so, why is this name brought back up? But to remind the people who is it that's going to fight this last battle? But Christ Himself will come and He will fight that last battle. And the seventh bowl poured out into the air, and there were flashes of lightning. And rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there has never been seen since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the city of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away. And no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from the heavens on people. The final the very end, the final judgment. And it's all complete as Christ returns and judges the world and judges the unbelievers. And this is tough stuff, isn't it? These bowls of wrath, why are they here? Why do we need to hear about them? How are they a blessing? I want to remind us first that these, and we see it in this passage, it's a function of God's sovereignty. Something that we've been reminded about as we've moved our way through Revelation over and over again, we've been reminded of who it is that's in control. That God is sovereign and he's in control. We, we see it in, in chapter 15 and verse eight, where, from whence do these bowls come, but from the sanctuary. And we see it filled with smoke from the glory of God for his power and nobody can, can enter. We, we, we see his great glory, his great, great power as out from him. Where does the authority come for these bowls to be poured out? But they come from him. In verse 5, we, we read that for you, speaking of God, for you brought these judgments. In verse 9, who is it? We, we read that he, our great God, is the one who had, has power, had power over the plagues. He is in complete control. He is sovereignly at work but still leaves us maybe scratching our head of, like, this is really bad. And and, and here's where we need to be reminded, that why does he act sovereignly in this way? It is a function of his justice. There's a British mystery writer, uh, P.D. James, maybe you've seen some TV series done by at least one of the detectives. Anyway, one of the books, one of the detectives says this, I don't go for this emphasis on sin and suffering and judgment. If I had a God, I'd like him to be intelligent and cheerful and amusing. In response, to that detective, her Jewish colleague, said this, I doubt whether you would find him much of a comfort when they herded you into the gas chambers. You might then prefer a God of vengeance. There can be, understand this, there can be no God of love without his pursuit of justice. A God who just passes over the evil of this world and just allows it to go on and continue would be no God of love at all. Let's not miss it. What Revelation is trying to tell us and what we see here before us is that God is bringing his justice into the world and he's going to bring it perfectly we, we, might, we, we might struggle and we might scratch our head as to the reason why, but he's going to bring it and he brings it perfectly. There can be no true justice without judgment, even the type of judgment that we see here in our passage. Our problem is, and I think I mentioned this before, we, we get mad at God either because th- there's injustice in the world. So God, how could you allow all this to take place? How could you allow things to be going like this? So we get mad at him like that or we And then we get mad at him when he does bring justice. And, God, how could you bring justice like that? How can you? Our passage points us to how we should interact with those things. In verse 5, what does the angel say? Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. And then in verse 7, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. What are we learning? That regardless of our experience, regardless of our thoughts on it, regardless of our perspective, God is bringing justice perfectly and in perfection. Do you remember back in Revelation chapter 5? first time we we hear about the prayer, the prayers of the saints. And back in chapter 5, where where does it describe those prayers of the saints being? As golden bowls full of incense. The prayers of the saints are contained in golden bowls full of incense. And In Revelation 6, we we, we learn a little bit of, of the content of these prayers. And you may remember this as well, O Sovereign Lord, Holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? It should be no surprise to us that the prayers of the saints were were held in golden bowls of incense, and that now the angels are out, sent out with golden bowls, golden bowls of the wrath of God, golden bowls that are a response to the pleas. Of the saints, seven of them, complete, perfect judgment, complete, perfect wrath of God sent out. As we read in verse six For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Does that give you heartburn as you hear those words? Do you struggle with that? What we're being taught in the book of Revelation is that these words that we've read this morning, this is the right, this is the appropriate consequence for sins. The bowls of wrath are this bad because our sins are this bad. Do you recognize that? Do you know that your sin is is this bad, that it deserves this? That's what I think we're, we're being told. We need to understand the reality of this. The reality of our sins, the the reality of what these sins deserve. That's actually the reason why Jonathan Edwards preached that sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He was desperately concerned for his people. He was desperately concerned for their hearts. He saw them, he knew them, and he knew how many of them were coming in each and every week. and weren't even really believers. They were just going through the functions. He knew who they were. and He wanted to shake them at their core. And he said to them this, almost every natural man that hears of hell, when we hear it, what do we do? What do we do? He says, we flatter ourselves that we shall somehow escape it. He depends on himself for his own security. He flatters himself in what he has done and what he is now doing and what he intends to do. Isn't that a sense what we see in our passage? And the individuals throughout this passage, even as they're confronted and experience the reality of punishment and judgment and the wrath of God, how is it that they respond? Verse 9, they curse the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. In verse 11, and curse the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds, kind of verse 11, or verse 21, sorry, they cursed God for the plague of hail. How do we respond to the judgment of God? Do we respond in similar ways? Edwards was so concerned. That's why he ended his sermon with the, these words, therefore, Let anyone who does not know Christ awake and fly from the wrath to come. The wrath of Almighty God is now undoubtedly hanging over a great part of this congregation. Let everyone fly out of Sodom. Run for your lives. Don't look back. Escape to the mountains lest you be consumed. There are likely some, maybe many, who need to hear about judgment this morning, who need to hear about his wrath for the very same reason that Edwards preached that to his congregation. And you need to hear this morning the call to run to Christ. You need to be reminded this day that heaven is open wide if you will repent of your sins and flee to Christ. Now, for many of us this morning, you're believers here, and well, what is all this for us? Let's not miss Jesus' words. The words in verse 15, likely the words of Jesus, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. These are, are words directly, likely from Christ. Who is he speaking to at this moment? You know, everything's been about judgment of the wicked. And here is like interposed in the midst of it, a word to the church. And what is the word? To persevere. We've been hearing this a lot as we move through the book of Revelation, as we've been promised, in fact, that suffering is going to come and it's going to be difficult and life is not going to be easy and you will be oppressed and you, you, you will suffer. What is that call? That call over and over again to persevere, to persevere to the very to the very end. We need to learn, my friends, if you're here this morning, if you're a believer, we need to learn to, to, to trust that God, and, and as hard as this picture is for us, this is a picture of how He is going about making. A very good ending. How can we have confidence that he's going to bring all of this to a good ending? How can we have confidence that these words before us are the right words and it's the appropriate response? You remember Jesus' words in Mark 14. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus was there in the garden, pleading with his father, pleading for assistance. The path path before him, it it was too great. Was there some way that this cup could be taken from him? What was that cup? That cup was the wrath of God that we've seen in our passage this morning. He had to drink of that cup. And he said, not my will, but yours be done. And where did he go? He went to the cross and he drank the cup of the wrath of God. In Romans 8, we read, or Romans 3, we read this. Whom God put forward, Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. How was God able to to pass over former sins? Through the propitiation of Jesus's blood. And what does that word mean? What, What is contained in that? But a sacrifice that appeases the wrath of God. Jesus Christ went to the cross drinking that terrible, awful cup so that we might have life. Do you know the beauty of that? Do you know how incredible that is? Do you understand that our passage that we read is? precisely what our sins deserve. And yet our Savior comes and drinks that cup for us. There was, a few years back, some of you may have heard it, there was um, a denomination that was putting together a new hymn book. and They wanted to include that hymn in Christ Alone, modern hymn. But they found offensive and so desperately wanted to remove that line that in Christ alone, the wrath of God was satisfied. They found it offensive. The songwriters declined the change. No, it must remain. And one commentator said this, I'm hardly one to tell other denominations what they ought to have in their hymnals. But the gospel is good news for Christians because it tells us of a God who is both love and justice. Let's not miss one for the other. The wrath of God does not cause us to cower or to judge our neighbors. It ought to prompt us to see ourselves as recipients of his mercy. If that's true, it should cause us to sing. In Christ alone, the wrath of God was satisfied. Because Jesus drank that cup of wrath, there's something incredible for us if you're in Christ. We get to drink from a cup of blessing. In Luke 22, at that Last Supper, after they had eaten, Jesus said, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. The cup of blessing. Because he drank the cup of wrath. If you're in Christ, or if you're not in Christ and you embrace him today, If we're in Christ, we don't get that cup of wrath, the bowls of wrath that we read about. We get to drink the cup of blessing, the cup of blessing that we're even gonna be able to gather together in a few moments and be reminded of the way our Savior rescued us from sin and death the wrath of God satisfied so that you and I would never have to drink from that cup so that we would not have to have those bowls of wrath poured upon us. Why? Because, as you see in our passage, with that seventh bowl, what is said from the throne, but it is done. The wrath of God was poured out. That work was finished. And we're reminded that at the cross, our Savior cried out those incredible words. It is finished. And what was finished? But the wrath of God poured out upon him. Do you know the beauty of that? of God, poured out on him, and he said, it is finished, so that you would never have to drink of that cup, but could enjoy the cup of blessing. Do you, this day, believe it and know it to be true? Do you know that he drank that cup? Pray that you do. Let's pray together. Father, as we've already said, this is a difficult text before us, and we want to run from words like wrath and judgment and but Father, as we run, would we run to our Savior? would we run to Jesus? We thank you that in our Savior, that in Christ, your wrath was holy and completely satisfied for your people. We thank you for the wonder of that. We pray this in the matchless name our Savior, Jesus Christ.